Acts 14.8. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame, and he had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, my name is Jacob, if we haven't met before, and yeah, it's great to have you with us as we continue through the book of Acts, which now we've heard is a story of how the church um, grew and, and grew to what it is really today, and how it is that, I guess, the way that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were working in these early days shaped a, a people that had a massive impact on the society around them, in, in, in caring for those who were in need, in, in alleviating suffering. Um, and so it's just great to be able to continue through that, that this morning. I'm just going to pray that as we look at these verses that Jesus just read to us, that, um, yeah, that, that God will be speaking to each and every one of us now. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can gather as your people, that we have this account in the book of Acts of, uh, of your apostles and how they took this gospel out and how this gospel changed the hearts and minds of people and transformed the world. And we just pray that this morning as we look at this and as we see what it has to say to us, that we would just be open, uh, open with our ears and our, and our eyes and our hearts to see what you would have to say to us, and that you would change us and transform us as you have done so many people before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of just having something that has just left you feeling just utterly let down or even just disillusioned. I used to be a massive, back in high school, a massive Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. They were easily my favorite band. I, like, I loved them. I had every single album that they had released. I had read even the lead singer Anthony Kiedis' self-entitled autobiography, and I had liked it. I tried learning all of Flea the bassist riffs on the bass guitar, even though I couldn't master any of them. And so when I was 17 and I heard that the Red Hot Chili Peppers were coming to play in Sydney, it was like a big moment for me. I was really, really excited. They were going to play at the Ace Arena. I'd never been to a stadium show before, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. On the day that the tickets got released, there was actually, this is back in 2007, there was a ticket tech on Darling Street just down the road, and, uh, and the tickets were going on sale at 9 a.m., so we got there at 7 p.m. the night before to camp out for tickets. We slept, didn't get much sleep on Darling Street. We got there in the morning, the shop opened up, we were the second in line, our little group. The first group went in, got tickets, we got to the counter, they were sold out. 
devastating. But we knew like, we weren't going to be d deterred. Even if we had to get like, jobs, we were going to get tickets somehow. And eventually, we did still manage to secure tickets to the concert. On the day of the concert, again, we got there like, early in the morning to be at the front of the line so we could get a, front, like, a spot at the beginning, at the start of the mosh pit and have a good view. Waited all day long, finally got in there, sat through the support act, which was no good. But eventually, it was time for them to come on. And they came, and they played, and it was terrible. It was like the most like, gutting experience of my life. I'd been looking forward to this day for so, so long, but they were just disinterested. They didn't engage with the crowd. They looked on, like, a bit washed up and, uh, and on drugs. And I, I just realized at the time that I had put way too much stock in like four middle-aged kind of drug-addled men to kind of to satisfy something I was deeply looking for. And actually, from that day, I stopped listening to them after that day. I've never gone back. That it was the end of my love affair with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I went on to bigger and better things. But I don't know if you've ever had that experience. And I think like, disillusionment is a great word for it because it captures that up until that point, it's not that the reality changed. It's that I was under an illusion. I, I I'd put, I guess, more weight and more hope in that group than they could possibly actually come through on. And that can happen with like a holiday you've been thinking of and dreaming about or a relationship that you're just so excited to get into and then once you're there, it's just not what you thought it was going to be. But it's also a dynamic that seems really, really common at the moment with how people experience and think about the church across the world. Disillusionment is often how people describe their feelings towards the church. And over the last few years, there's kind of lots of, I suppose, reasons for that if you've, you know... You can see on, on TV, on, on SBS, or in podcasts, these stories of churches and of church leaders that at one point felt like they were the next big thing, they were the answer to Christianity or what the world needed or something like that, had, had, a, had amassed a whole bunch of followers and then have had something happen that's made it all come crashing down, leaving people feeling just disillusioned. What we're going to be looking at in this passage today, which I think is a really helpful passage for our times, is really a warning against putting our deepest hope, our deepest trust into vain things which are bound to let us down and which will eventually disappoint. And what we're going to see here is a call to trust in the one being in the universe who is actually worthy of our trust and who we is guaranteed to never let us down and to meet our heart's desire. For a bit of context as to where we are in the book of Acts, the focus has shifted in these last couple of chapters from being primarily about how the gospel is going to the people of Jerusalem and Judea and the, and the people of the Jews to Paul and a few others taking this gospel all around the, the known world at the time, throughout the, throughout the uh, was at the time, the Roman Empire. And what we see in this passage in particular is that it's the first time the gospel has gone to a group of people that have got no background in Judaism at all. Paul's been sent out for Jerusalem with his like, sidekick-type guy Barnabas, and he's been going town to town preaching the gospel. And this, in this passage, they come to a place called Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey. And it's an interesting place to, sh to slow down, because in many ways, the people of Lystra are like people in our world today. It was a polytheistic place, a very open-minded place, but... But one as well that had really, I guess, got stuck into the, the view of gods of the Romans and the Greeks. And so to get into this story, we just needed a little bit of a brushing up on our Greek mythology. I'm sure, does everyone have like the, the, the myth of Philemon and Balkis at like the tip of your mind? Does everyone, everyone across Philemon and Balkis? Very popular, popular myth. Um, I'm going to run you through it if you don't already have it. I hadn't heard of it till this week. But um, let me tell you the myth in a, in a nutshell. 
Philemon and, and Balchus, I think that's how you say her name, I don't really know. They were an elderly couple and they, they lived uh, and then had lived all of their days in, in relative poverty on the outskirts of a village. They lived in a straw hut. They didn't have much more than what they could just get by every day to eat. But they lived their lives with dignity. They were good people and they loved each other. And one day, into their quiet town, two strangers arrived. These strangers came in. They were weary and hungry from their travels and they sought a place to stay. And they went from door to door throughout the town, knocking on every door and requesting lodging for the night. And time and time again, they were pushed away and rejected, treated with suspicion because they were unknown. And time and time again, no one would let them in. Now, the very last house that these two strangers came to was the home of Philemon and Baucus, who, unlike anyone else, actually opened up their doors and said, yeah, you can come in and stay. And more than that, without even being asked, they opened up their reserves of eggs, olives, and wine, and even offered to kill and serve to them their beloved goose. And the travelers were grateful and dined with Philemon and Baucus. But then Philemon noticed something wasn't right. Despite the fact that they were eating and drinking and, 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 and drinking lots of wine over the table, the jug of wine never became empty. And he realized that these strangers must be gods. And at that point, the strangers revealed themselves there was Zeus and his son Hermes, who had traveled down from Mount Olympus to see if there were any in the land that would show them hospitality. And only Philemon and Balchus had. So Zeus and, and Hermes, they led them out to the top of a high mountain where they looked down in their village and saw a great flood came and destroyed the whole village, leaving only their small hut intact. But when they looked at their hut, they saw that in its place, the hut was no longer there, there was a lavish temple, and Philemon and Balchus lived out the rest of their days in wealth. Now, it's a good little moral story about showing uh, kindness to strangers, uh, but it also shows a bit of a window into how, I guess, people of the world then viewed their gods. That gods were these beings to be appeased, and then in turn be rewarded. And this was a myth that would have been known by the people of Lystra. They had a, a temple dedicated to the god of Zeus. They were no doubt well versed in the myths surrounding Zeus. And so just keep that in mind as we get into this passage to see what's going on. Acts 14 verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. So the story starts with the healing. It's not super unique based on what we've already seen in the book of Acts. As the gospel goes out to new places, it's often accompanied with miracles and signs showing that Jesus is still present and continuing his ministry to bring healing and, and wellness and wholeness to a broken world. So that's not entirely unique what's happened so far in the book of Acts. But the way the crowds respond here is different to anything we've seen before. Verse 11 continues the story. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So the people of Lystra, who have been primed with stories such as the myth of Philemon and Baruchus, say, ah, I know what's going on here. Two strangers have rocked up out of nowhere. They're foreigners. We don't know who they are. And they're bringing with them these crazy signs. There's this healing that's happened that we can't explain. 
So what's the best explanation for what we're seeing in front of us? Well, these two people, they must be gods. And if we play our cards right, and we can kind of worship them and, and make some sacrifices to them, maybe they're going to then leave us with this just lavish prosperity as we've learned about in these myths. So how do Paul and Barnabas respond to this? Now, having personally never been mistaken for a god myself, I can only imagine <laughs> what it feels like. And on one level, I can see there'd be something at least slightly enticing about the prospect, especially given the abuse and persecution they've been. Every town these guys go to, they get beaten up, rejected, and finally they come into a place, they do the thing they do everywhere else, and, and people are just wanting to bow down and worship them. You can imagine just Paul turning to Barnabas and being like, look, we'll have to let them know eventually, but we just want to let this play out for a little bit, like at least have a good meal, maybe a, like a hot bath, and then we'll kind of break the news. That's not how they respond. Verse 14 says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Their response to what's going on is to demand an instant stop, and they cry out with, with urgency. The sort of urgency you might have if you saw a toddler wandering into the path of oncoming traffic. You would, you would rush and yell. They tear their clothes, and they insist that they are not worthy of worship. And I think it's in this response that there is something deeply that our culture needs to hear about this. In our culture, where being worshipped and revered is more often than not something that is embraced rather than shunned. Despite living in a largely secular world where the idea of kind of gods in the sky coming down seems more myth than reality, people still have to fill the void of having somewhere to direct our attention, our affection, and our sacrifice, and our worship. And often, that's towards people. Celebrity worship is probably like the strongest religion of our secular age. Both the fixation upon celebrities and the lives they live and, and being across what they're up to, but also just the desire to be celebrity. The desire to become famous for any and every reason is one of the strongest desires among young people today. And it makes sense because it's really celebrities that wield the godlike power. Imagine being able to write your name on something and have the value of that thing go up ten times just by doing that. It's like the closest thing of being able to make gold out of thin air. That's what celebrities can do. If Taylor Swift needed an extra $50,000, which she doesn't, all she needs to do is go buy a $2,000 guitar, play five songs in it, write Taylor, and then someone will pay $50,000 for that guitar. That's how it works. See, Zeus has got nothing on Taylor Swift. There are more Swifties than there are Greeks. I tried to fact-check fact that. I couldn't prove that that was a false statement, so I'll have to leave it out there. <laughs> but when, when, when Taylor Swift tickets went on, on sale a few weeks ago, it, like, it put our household on hold, and I'm sure it did many others, because nothing could be worse than not catching a glimpse of the divine spark that is Taylor. I read an article, no joke, about people saying they're having post-concert amnesia, and out-of-body experiences when they're there. And it's not just the biggest of big celebrities. We've now got this kind of population of half-celebrities, or demigods, if you will, of the, of the influencer. Influencer culture, it's this, it's this person, it's the archetype of the perfect lifestyle with the promise that if you come under their influence, you'll be transformed. These people are not mere mortals, living with less than perfect diets or not enough new clothes the way that we are. They are the class of perfectly dressed, 
perfectly fit people with perfectly designed homes, perfect kids and perfect dogs that we must learn from. And as you can tell, I'd probably, you, I could rile against celebrities and influencers all, all day, but to, to narrow it down, I think the issue that this passage speaks into isn't just celebrity culture broadly, but celebrity culture within the church. Because the church is not immune from this celebrity phenomenon. Mike Cosper, who's a, a, an American um, journalist, uh, sums up this phenomenon really well. Um, I'm going to read it at length, but I think he, just, he captures it so well. He says, Celebrity worship is one of the central religions of our secular age. Celebrities are icons. They embody an image of what we think the good life is, and we aspire to that life for ourselves. Just as people flock to Kim Kardashian because she embodies what they desire, sex, money, beauty, power, and fame, people flock to Christian celebrities because they embody desires as well. In some cases, the desires are just as shallow. An awful lot of celebrity pastors and worship leaders are young, good-looking, well-coiffed, and well-dressed. They get reality TV shows, and if they don't have a reality TV show, they live a lifestyle that wouldn't be out of place with one, complete with entourages and outlandish antics. In other cases, and I think this is just as common, we flock to celebrity pastors and worship leaders because they represent the piety, passion, and faith we wish we had ourselves. Now, Christian celebrity should be a bit of an oxymoron, but I'm sure you, you're aware of this dynamic. I'm sure you can, people and churches come to mind as I give that description. Faith leaders, and often it's pastors, who are elevated to a place of almost divine authority. When it's that person's personality or influence or lifestyle that becomes the thing that is desired and, and attractive more so than the gospel itself. The dynamic when, when a Christian leader is fundamentally different from your average person, not just different in, in their role or the position they've been given, or not just different in the responsibility that they're potentially taking on, but different in essence, with an air of infallibility or a particular closeness to God. And this happens on, in the public world with the kind of pastors who write a book and put a picture of their face with a big white tooth grin on the front of it. But it even happens in smaller churches when when the leader can claim to, say, have a private word from God or a direct line where the, or, or just to put themselves on a pedestal above accountability. And while that's a dynamic that many churches and many church leaders have embraced, it is one that Paul and Barnabas find to be a revolting concept. Their response shows that they seem acutely aware of the dangers at hand, of a person being treated like a god. And it's dangerous on a whole bunch of levels. It's dangerous for the person themselves. Being worshipped isn't good for you. It can't be good psychologically to be having people tell you day after day that you're amazing. In fact, it can be crushing. So many of the, the documentaries and, and biopics that have come out of late on, on Freddie Mercury and Elton John, on Elvis, on, on Michael Jordan, tell the story of the crushing weight of fame. That living up to people's idolized version of you is just impossible. It is a weight that no one can bear. And so too in the church, being idolized puts people, leaders of whatever type they are, a weight they can't possibly bear. But it's not just bad for the person, it's bad for the church. One of the most damaging things, not only to the reputation of the church across the world, but what has been most damaging to the individuals who make up the church, has been the damage done by pastors and leaders who have been elevated or have elevated themselves to these ultra-human positions of authority. And I'm sure you can think of times or, or stories where from that place of power, away from accountability and, and transparency and correction, 
The people have been able to use their power to abuse in all the forms that abuse can take. And even beyond that, to, to discredit those who have been abused until eventually all is revealed and a path of devastation is left behind. Or from this place of just being idolized and worshipped when leaders have fallen into sin, perhaps even the kind of sin that any person might fall into time to, from time to time, but because of their position and the way people viewed them and the people who had attached their own personal faith to how that person was going, has just left in their wake hurt and disillusionment and pain. Because being let down by someone is hard at the best of times. When you've kind of pinned an aspect of your identity and your faith and your knowledge of God on that person, it can be destabilizing. Whether that's an author that you've liked and respected or someone you've known personally. And I say this because I know that for people in this room, that's been part of your story, where you've seen or experienced personally the damage that comes when, there's, when, a, when a leader hasn't, pushed away this kind of idolizing and this worship that's been put upon them, but they've embraced it and they've taken ownership of it and they've hurt people in the process. There's another reason as well that Paul wants to steer his hearers away from worshiping him, and it's because to worship him would be to miss the gospel. Look at how Paul continues. This is just after he's just said, don't worship us, we are men just like you. He then says, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul says the biggest danger in this is that the worship of the vain can lead you to miss the one who is worthy of worship. It can lead you to miss the living God. Because we are predisposed to attaching our affections and our desires and our hopes to lesser things. To a person, perhaps, who we feel like can give us a certain lifestyle or creature comforts or social status. And Paul, remember, is speaking into this pagan context in which the relationship with the gods is largely transactional that they were gods of food and of rain and of harvests. And different gods could be appeased in certain ways to, to give these good things. The thing that they would really want is the rain, it's the food, it's the gladness. But Paul says, look deeper. If you follow these good things that you like and that you desire to their source, you'll find something even better. He doesn't say these things that you want, like wanting to be happy is a bad or an evil thing. What he says, though, is that this gladness that you've experienced and have experienced in your life, this food you enjoy, wouldn't you want to get to know the God who made them? He's saying to them that right now, your best case scenario is attempting to manipulate these vain gods that you've created yourself to, to get you these things, but there is something much, much greater. You are aiming too low. And I think that's what Paul would say to Sydney today. If he scrolled through the average Instagram account and saw the things that are getting sold to us, he'd say, look, Turn from these vain things. Why chase homes and holidays and health when you could know the God who made you? There is a God who designed every good thing that we know and experience. And the greatest risk we run as a people is to settle for something less. This is what C.S. Lewis says in his just fantastic essay, The Weight of Glory, where he sums this up and he says, It would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling, around, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an infinite child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. We've struggled to imagine just how good God is, but what Paul is trying to communicate is that there is one more worthy of worship than any person could possibly seek to be or that anything in our imagination could even match up to. And that's what leads Paul and Barnabas to direct prayers away from themselves with such earnestness. Because they know that compared to the God that they represent, they are nothing. And if people put their hope in them, they will be sorely let down because they can never provide what people need. But to trust in God is to find life. Paul and Barnabas recognize that the allure of human approval and admiration is dangerous because it is built upon an idolatrous heart. And that the idolatry of these people of Lystra who they are speaking to, if left unchecked, will cause them to miss the living God and ultimately destroy them altogether. And so what they do is they say, look, maybe it's going to be nice to be treated like a God, but they throw away their social status to confront the crowd, to speak truth to them. And that leads to how this passage ends. Verses 19 and 20, after Paul and Barnabas say this, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So some of Paul's opponents, they come in, they convince this crowd who moments before were trying to worship Paul to in fact stone him, presumably because he's going to attack their way of life. And they stone him to the point where they think that he's dead. And it's an interesting way for the passage to end. Because Paul goes from being worshipped and revered to being hated to the point of death in a matter of sentences. And I think this is a really both a challenging and an encouraging way for this passage to end. It's challenging because I think it should make us ask the question, would we do likewise? If the offer was there to be universally liked, respected, wanted, and revered, if you're willing to keep quiet about the truth, would you take it? Or would you be willing to speak the truth if you knew that that was going to risk physical harm to yourself? We want to be praised. We want to be liked. We want to have people respect us. It's this part of being a human to want those things. But Paul challenges, here, challenges us here to put a higher premium on something than just being praised. He values the gospel and the truth and the opportunity of people to hear of Jesus more than being liked himself. And so that's a question worth thinking through, whether you're in, in leadership in, in some way or whether just you're going about your life, because if you haven't got that sorted to know what is more important, being liked or the truth, you will compromise. Paul shows us what it is to be a person who has died to human approval and has been set free to speak the truth in love. So it's a challenge. But I think it's also an encouragement. Because we see here, despite all of the news stories and, and podcasts and, and, and just discouraging stories in the world today, we see a model of leadership that can be redemptive for the church. We see the type of leader that the world needs today. We see that Paul was not like some of the self-centered, narcissistic church leaders that, that fill up the, the media cycle with their failings, who use people for their own self-advancement and gain. We see in Paul a different road that it's possible to take. 
And it's clear that his model of leadership wasn't built on the gods of the Greek myth, but built on Jesus. Where for the Greek gods, where they came into our world to be served, to be waited on at tables, Jesus came to serve. For the Greek gods, greatness was in in recognition and fame and status, but for Jesus, it was in humility. And Paul knows this. He says in Philippians 2 from verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul encourages us to be like Jesus. Jesus who loved so much that he forwent his due to be recognized as God, to even be God, to come into a world as a person. Not as like a test, to test how we'd respond to him, but as an act of love, going to the point of his own death to love us. And I wonder if this was going through Paul's mind as people started to worship him in the street, as he thought to himself, if people are heaping praise on me, but they killed Jesus, something must be wrong. He wanted to be like Jesus, and so he trades in recognition for service. And it's people going the same road, looking to the example of Jesus and the example of Paul and saying, what's going to matter more than being liked is just loving and speaking the truth that is going to actually transform the world. People who are into love others even if it comes at a personal cost. Not seeking opportunities for greatness and status, but opportunities to love. It's the kind of mindset that would lead people to do things like what Jen shared about being the cool auntie mum who gets alongside someone and invests their own time and energy and, and, and resources to help someone else, not because it will in any way glorify them or make them look great, but because it will be walking in the way of Jesus and the way of Paul, loving at great cost to ourselves. That's the kind of leader that we have at City Light, and, and I'm talking across the board. Our small group leaders here are people who don't lead for the status that comes with that, not that there is any status that comes with being one of our small group leaders, but they do it for love, to help other people. The same as those who lead us in worship in the band. It's not an, it's not an ego boost to get up here on this stage. It is costly, it is hard. You get up early on a Sunday morning, and, you, and they do it for love. It's why dozens of people volunteer to lead in our kids' program, not because they get puffed up or they feel good about it, but because they see that leading people to Jesus is the most important thing we can do. Because there is one who is worth knowing and worshipping. I'm going to pray that we would capture this vision as a church and we would be encouraged to be like Jesus, to be like Paul, to not seek our own glory, but to seek the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this account and what we see in it that is such just a, an antidote to the narrative that we have that what matters most is recognition and fame and being liked. And we know how deceptively alluring it can be to want to have people like us. We know how the desire to be seen in a certain way will often change the way that we speak or the way that we act. But we pray we would have such a vision of you and your greatness and your glory that you are the living God who made every good thing that we've ever known and experienced, that we would have the confidence in that to be people who speak the truth, who are willing to take on personal cost to ourselves that we might save some. That We would be in this city that is just so captured with comfort and wealth and status that we would be able to offer something different back into that. It would be seen as different 
we would have the reputation of people who, who are not just on about our own comfort, who are not just on about ourselves at all, but who are on about you. And we pray that people in the city would recognize that, they would turn to you, and they would experience the great and deep joy that only comes from knowing you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.